Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Millions of Americans crushed by the economic fallout of the COVID crisis also face the threat of eviction. This week, the Biden administration extended the eviction moratorium after months of protests, pressure, and pleading from advocates like former HUD Secretary Julian Castro. The consequences of our policy decisions like this are bigger than just where somebody sleeps from one night to the next. Julian Castro on solving the eviction crisis and more coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. As the COVID crisis sickened or killed millions of Americans, it also pushed many of the most vulnerable citizens out of work and into economic desperation. Renters who saw their jobs disappear or hours cut faced eviction and the health consequences of becoming homeless during a pandemic. After much debate and what some activists see as foot dragging on the part of the Biden administration, the president finally extended the eviction moratorium this week, meaning that more Americans will be able to stay in their homes. One of the people responsible for turning up the heat on the eviction issue is Julian Castro. He's the former mayor of San Antonio, the former housing and urban development secretary in the Obama administration, and a 2020 presidential candidate. He's now the host of the Our America podcast. Julian Castro joins us now. Welcome to A Word. Hey, it's great to be with you, Jason. What are your thoughts about the extension of the eviction moratorium, Secretary Castro? Does the language include everything you hope for? Do you think it's too late? What do you think of the decision that came down from the administration this week? Well, it's definitely a positive step. Uh, what the Biden administration has done is basically say, okay, look, we're not going to extend a nationwide uh, eviction moratorium through the CDC. Instead, what we're going to do is say, where you have COVID hotspots, places where the Delta variant especially is surging, now the eviction moratorium will apply there. They say that that covers about 90% of Americans. So look, that's a very positive step. Um, Do I wish that it covered everybody? Yeah, I do. Because there are a lot of people, those other 10% of Americans, uh, in places where COVID is not necessarily surging, but where we could see a quick uptick. Uh, within a matter of days or a week or so. But either way, still a lot of people that are facing eviction, um, no matter where they are, in a time when a lot of people are still recovering economically because of the pandemic, quite separate and apart from uh, the situation on the ground with COVID right now. You know, 90% of Americans is a lot of Americans. I wish we could get to all of the Americans. So there is some still unfinished business. Secretary Castro, one of the things that is probably strange to a lot of observers is it seemed like for a long time there was almost like this circular firing squad, right? The Biden administration said, yeah, Congress needs to do it. And Congress is like, well, actually, the Biden administration needs to do it. And then someone's like, well, actually, it's the CDC's job. Were you frustrated? I mean, you've been in an administration before. Were you frustrated seeing for weeks and at some levels months, 
multiple federal agencies all claiming that they couldn't do anything about this problem. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, you had, as you say, the administration pointing their finger at Congress, them pointing their finger back. Within the administration, the word was, well, it's really the CDC's decision, but the president is asking them to go back and rethink what they're doing. There was a lot of back and forth. And in the meantime, you know that what we're talking about is a policy that affects a lot of the most vulnerable Americans out there, people that are already living on the edge, people that in fact uh, are more likely to have experienced COVID or have a family member that does, more vulnerable in general in our healthcare system, our education system, our employment system. Um, And so the stakes were very high. This was a rare for this administration, I think, uh, dropping of the ball early on. Now, you know, to their credit, they have come back. And as I said, it's a very, very positive thing they've done, um, the, the amended moratorium. But uh, it, it shouldn't have taken all the way until the day before or two days before the eviction moratorium was going to expire for them to make a push with Congress uh, to say, hey, look, this really should be extended. And in the meantime, really to extend it themselves the way they have. It it never should have lapsed in the first place. What exactly does the eviction moratorium do? Does it just mean, hey, if I haven't paid my rent, I have a couple more months to do it? Do I just have to pay a percentage of my rent? And what does it do if you are a property owner? If you're a property owner and your tenants aren't paying rent, is there any sort of protection for you? What what's actually what are the actual mechanics of how an eviction moratorium works? The CDC put an eviction moratorium in place under the auspices of public health uh, that because of these unique circumstances with COVID-19 pandemic, in order to protect the public health, it made sense not to have people thrown out into the street, basically evicted. The moratorium itself, you can think of it like cover. It basically provides cover and says, look, you're not going to be kicked out of uh, your home, your apartment. It addresses renters. You know, homeowners are a different story. If they have a mortgage, there were protections that were put in place through the FHA uh, and FHFA and through people working with their banks that essentially allowed for forbearance for people that have uh, a mortgage. Here with the eviction moratorium, we're talking specifically about renters. So it provided cover, it provided a blanket and said, you you cannot actually evict somebody from this point in time until this point in time, the CDC had extended that eviction moratorium three times previously based on the conditions in our country with COVID-19. The fact that we, we still weren't over this pandemic completely. And now there's a, a fourth extension, although it looks different from the other ones because it's not a fully nationwide uh, extension. It's important that the other side of the equation is, in the meantime, that Congress allocated $47 billion of rental assistance for renters to be able to avail themselves of funds, people who were behind on rent. And by one count, we had about $23 billion of back rent with the average renter owing $3,800 in back rent, just to give you a a sense of how dire the circumstance is for a lot of people. And for $3,800 for most people, I mean, you they do not have right, it. Right. You know, that that's you might as well ask them for a million dollars. So these funds that were granted out to the states and from the states into localities were meant to provide a bridge 
uh, so that people would have the resources they need. The problem was that problem has been that only about 7% of those funds have actually been allocated. In many ways, it's been government living up to it, the worst reputation. Look, I'm somebody who believes in the power of government to do good, uh, to help people, to make things better. But we have to acknowledge that sometimes you do have examples where there's too much red tape, they make the application too difficult, too cumbersome, there's not enough outreach, especially in vulnerable communities that can be hard to reach anyway. And for those reasons and others, I'm sure, the system has been uh, subpar by far. So a lot of the pressure for extending this moratorium has come from both the fact that we've seen a surge in the coronavirus, but then also, hey, these funds are still out there and, and they're not getting to the people that actually need them. Finally, with regard to landlords, these funds do get into the hands of landlords. Um, these funds are paid to landlords. Uh, most of the ways that the, the programs are structured are that they go oftentimes directly to the landlords. On top of that, there's other assistance for landlords. For instance, many of them who may have a note on a building may get forbearance themselves through a federal program or through their bank. So it's important to note that especially for a lot of these mom and pop landlords who may own a single family home or a duplex or a fourplex, you know, not everybody is a big corporation. Many of these, these uh, mom and pop landlords, there were also protections and assistance put in place for them. We're going to take a short break. We come back more with Julian Castro. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Did you know you could be listening to this show ad-free? All it takes is a Slate Plus membership. It's just $1 for the first month, and it helps support our show. Plus, it lets you hear all Slate podcasts without ads and read unlimited articles on the Slate site without ever hitting a paywall. So sign up now for Slate Plus at slate.com slash a word plus. That's slate.com slash a word plus. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, former HUD Secretary Julian Castro is speaking with us about the eviction crisis. So... We've talked about the politics of this, but this is something, uh, Secretary, that I think a lot of people may not understand when it comes to evictions. If you get evicted one time, certainly earlier in your life, it can have like long-term consequences because every other place that you try 
to rent is going to ask you, have you been evicted? It can affect your credit. It can affect the other places you live. It can result, you know, if you get evicted once as a 24-year-old because you lost your job for a couple of months, it means the next place you go to may not be as nice. Can you talk a little bit about what the long-term implications are of millions of Americans being evicted in mass if we don't make sure that programs like this last all the way throughout this crisis? I think the most important thing is we know from social science research that housing is foundational. It is the key to stability in people's lives. If you have a safe, decent, affordable place to live, a child is more likely to be able to get a decent education, focus on their schooling, Somebody is more likely to be able to hold on to a job or get a job in the first place. Your health is better if you have a safe, decent, affordable place to live, you know, which makes sense and it's true. Uh, so it, it's foundational. It's the key to a better quality of life across the board. You're also right that there's a domino effect here, a domino effect to potentially personal ruin. Somebody gets evicted, their credit is ruined. Uh, they're not going to be able to get uh, an apartment uh, because that next apartment manager, leasing manager that's looking at their application sees on their credit record that they were evicted. And that's a huge red flag in a market that is often hot where they have multiple applicants and, you know, they don't, they don't need to take this kind of risk in their eyes. It also makes it harder to access credit in the future if somebody's trying to build up to be able to buy a home, for instance. Access to credit for vulnerable communities is already a huge problem. It becomes even harder if you have an eviction on your record. Uh, not to mention you know, the, the question of where people go once they are evicted. If they're lucky, they end up being able to find a place but the fact is that we had a rental affordability crisis well before this pandemic. Rents were spiking everywhere, just about, and it was difficult to find a place in the first place. People end up doubling up with relatives or at a friend's apartment, or some people sleep in their vehicles. So, I mean, it has this cascading effect toward personal ruin. And you know, we need to remember that, that especially during this pandemic, but any time in our country, the consequences of our policy decisions like this are bigger than just where somebody sleeps from one night to the next. They often have years-long negative effects or positive effects, if we get it right, on people's lives. Secretary Castro, when the power grid went out in Texas and hundreds of thousands of people were without power and many people had to go out and try to find places to stay, look for clean water, attempted to find hotels to stay in that were gouging them on prices. It's almost like Texas had a dry run for the eviction crisis that we're facing now. How well do you think the leadership has learned anything from the winter storm crisis? And do you think they'll be prepared for the consequences when this eviction moratorium does eventually run out? Texas leadership has failed Texans in so many different ways from not being able to maintain the power grid, uh, even though we'd seen a preview of this 10 years earlier in 2011 and state leadership had been warned about the need to require investment so that this kind of thing wouldn't happen again. Our, our grid wouldn't fail. They didn't do that, and it did fail again spectacularly. Uh, but, you know, Texas, the leadership here, Republican leadership, has long prided itself in being a 
low tax, low social services regime. And what that's meant is that we have more people without health insurance, a higher rate of lack of health insurance than any other state, including children. We have a lot of people who have lost their homes, uh, you know, lost their apartments during the winter storm or uh, during the economic recession and then during this pandemic. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a poster child in many ways in what not to do. Celebrates these wins, you know, which are wins in one sense of having investment come into places like Austin or some other communities and creating jobs that are well-paying for uh, folks that are going to go make but at the same time, there's a growing underclass of people who are not well-educated because the schools are failing them, who are not healthy because the healthcare system here uh, doesn't serve them well, they haven't expanded Medicaid, for instance, and who are increasingly homeless, unable to access safe, decent, affordable housing. Take a short break and we come back more with Julian Castro on the eviction crisis. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with former HUD secretary and presidential candidate Julian Castro about the eviction crisis. So... This is a, an interesting question that I think you are uniquely capable uh, of talking about. You were part of the Obama administration, which, uh, you know, established a democratic practice of building a new coalition to win presidential elections. And most analysts say now, look, in order to win for a Democrat, you got to get young people, you got to get brown people, you got to get black people, you got to get all these different kinds of people involved to get elected. And yet... When it comes to issues like housing, when it comes to issues like $15 minimum wage, when it comes to issues like health care, in a lot of instances, critics say that, well, this coalition came together to get Biden into office, but he has been slow in addressing the issues of the community that got him in. What do you think about that criticism? And if Biden were to pick up the phone and call you right now, which he probably should, what would you tell him he needs to do to make sure that he keeps that coalition of young, brown, and black people that put him in office still engaged? Well, you know, I would compliment him on getting the American Rescue Plan done. I would compliment the work that they've done to get this infrastructure deal done. And and though an uh, important part of that is the reconciliation package that will come along with it. There's no question that those will be big wins for, you know, even the most vulnerable communities and for communities of color. I'd also say that there's a political reckoning that is coming in his administration very soon. Because I feel like whether it's uh, the issue of climate or uh, reimagining policing or immigration, that there were expectations 
in this coalition that we would also see progress on these issues. And what it feels like is that the administration has, uh, has embraced this notion that previous administrations have that you can only get one thing done at a time. And you know, I just didn't see it that way. I think that we're in a very different time right now. People, and especially after Trump, people almost expect that you're going to go full-throatedly right. for your agenda. Exactly. Exactly. Because that's what, especially they, that's what folks saw Trump do. Now, I, I didn't like his agenda, was like a lot of other people was raising my voice to do what I could to say we're going in the wrong direction. But Biden has the opportunity to not only get big things done in infrastructure, but big things done in raising that minimum wage and fighting climate change and doing justice for immigrants in our country and uh, making sure that what happened to George Floyd doesn't happen again. So the question is, okay, when are you going to get it done? And the problem for the Biden administration is time is running out. I mean, uh, you know, somebody that's just looking at it says, oh, well, look, this is just the first year of his administration. Yeah, but politics being politics, the closer you get to these midterms, uh, you know, people, politicians start to get more and more cautious. Congress is going to be more and more difficult to get anything to move in. And it gets less and less likely that you're going to be able to make the big kind of change that was promised on the campaign trail. That's what he's facing. Now, you know, I also know that it's not just up to the president, right? It's, it's up to congressional leaders. It's up to the movement that got him there to, to keep pushing and to make these things happen, to not take no for an answer. I mean, what Cori Bush did recently uh, her activism out there sleeping on the steps along with some of her colleagues to keep pushing the White House to extend this eviction moratorium. I think that's the spirit that we all have to have. Now, I think pushing Congress is probably a lot harder than pushing the administration, uh, but we need to be pushing on things like that, on setting aside the filibuster, getting voting rights done, addressing these other issues that are important to the everyday lives of so many people that are a part of that coalition and just Americans in general, whatever their stripe. I want to follow up on that. I mean, you live in a state that as much as people talk about Georgia being ground zero for voting rights, I mean, the entire Democratic caucus had to flee your state in order to go plead to Congress. Can you please do something about voting rights? Are you frustrated with individuals in the House and Senate? Are you frustrated with the administration? Because you basically have an entire state Republican apparatus that seems like it's trying to shut down one county. And Texas itself would be significantly more competitive electorally if this administration got something done with voting rights. Like This is a five-alarm fire. The fact that these Texas legislators had to flee the state, had to leave the state to break quorum. And I feel like there's not that same sense of urgency in important places. You know, after the infrastructure deal was tentatively put together, it was uh, written up that the Biden administration had had something like 300 meetings with Congress, working on pushing for, advocating for, ironing out the deal. I mean, I'd like to see 300 meetings pushing and advocating for and getting the deal done on voting rights. And on the other side of it, because I know that it takes 
at least two to tango on the Senate side. I respect Senator Manchin a lot, but we're in a new political reality. The Republican Party of Donald Trump is not the old Republican Party. They're not going to magically agree uh, to give up their scheme to suppress the votes of people that they don't believe are supportive of them, um, especially black and brown communities. Uh, they're not going to have a come to Jesus moment where they suddenly think that it's good to expand voting rights and protect uh, access to the ballot box, you know, at least no time soon. And so I, I see it as naive to believe that you're going to get up to 60 votes. You need to set aside the filibuster. And that's just staring at him plain as day. And unless his willingness to set aside the filibuster changes, you know, the hopes of getting something significant, significant done are dim. Having said that, I mean, they're going to keep working, right, and being creative. And uh, if there's anybody who understands the legislative process and being creative with it and shepherding it, it's Joe Biden. I want to close with this because I always think this is important. We, we are in a country that is always in need of new leadership and creative, dynamic, outside and inside the box thinkers. You know, look, 2024 is far off. There are Senate races. Do you have any future statewide or national political aspirations? You know, what do you do? You know what the next steps for former Secretary Castro might be, or are you just primarily now focused on on being a fantastic podcaster? (laughs) Yeah, you know, look. uh, In all honesty, I will probably run again for office at some point, but right now I'm not sure. You know when that will be. I don't feel an itch right now to run. I feel like I just went through this marathon of the 2020 campaign. I've had the opportunity now in these last 16 months, if there's been a silver lining of the pandemic for me and my family, it's been that I've had the opportunity to spend a lot more time with them. And so I've enjoyed that. I'm going to keep using my voice as I can to support candidates and issues that are important. But for right now, I'm not running for anything. And I'm okay with that. You know, I I lost a race for mayor when I was 30 years old and um, sat out for a few years and I was surprised at that time that I didn't miss it the way that I thought that I would. And right now, I guess I watch a lot of it enough and follow it a lot of it a lot of it enough that I don't miss it. <laughs> you know, but uh, but I I also have a heart for public service. I guess I got that from my mom, who was a, an activist. And so, at some point, I'll probably jump back in. Julian Castro is a former San Antonio mayor, U.S. housing secretary, and presidential candidate. He's also the host of the Our America podcast. Thank you very much for joining us on A Word. Thanks for having me, Jason. And that's A Word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel and Jasmine Ellis. Asha Salusha is the managing producer of podcasts at Slate. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 